All right, welcome to the Notes from the Underground podcast. Today we have a, a, the pleasure and honor of having Dr. Jack Fuller on as a guest. Dr. Jack, is, Dr. Jack Fuller is a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group, um, c- currently on the BGC, BCG's think, think Tank, writing a book called Competing on Imagination, looking at how imagination lives in business and strategies to keep imagine, imagination alive under pressure. He has a degree in neuroscience from Melbourne University and a MPhil and a DPhil PhD in theology and ethics from Oxford University, where he studied on a Rhodes Scholarship. His doctorate was on desire and ethics of advertising. Uh, Previously, Jack worked at the School of Life, where he taught classes every day on philosophy, including procrastinating less, rising ambition, the ethics of ego, and his work has his work on imagination has been presented at the BCG's clients in the U.S. and in Europe. And his work has been uh, published at MIT Sloan Review, BCG Perspectives, The Conversation, The Sydney Morning Herald, and most recently the Harvard Business Review. So, Jack, it's a, it's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, would, would you like to? Is there anything you could fill in the blanks from that intro? Sure. Yeah, I would say, you know, just thinking about my path, it can seem that there's a range of things in there, but something that ties it together for me is that I've always been interested in human nature, like, you know, what's really going on with with us, what's inside of us. Um, And so that's why I studied neuroscience initially, kind of from that more philosophy perspective. And and then I ended up studying theology at Oxford, um, sort of philosophical theology, I guess, but also trying to think about humans and human nature from a different perspective. Um, so that, that kind of ties together the academic side. And then one other theme I would say is I've always been interested in like applying ideas. I've always been frustrated when I'm just doing the idea side, like in the academy. Um, and I, I want to combine it with, with practicality. So I see the school of life um, as one example of a business that does that they're based in Mel- uh, in melbourne and london around the world um and that's also why i joined boston consulting group to try to understand the practical side of things more basically that, that's the journey i'm on trying to do intellectual and practical as well awesome um you know a lot of this podcast is focused on uh you know redefining the game we're in having different vantage points you know getting out of that matrix and obviously imagination plays a critical role on that you wrote a a blog post called the biggest forces that shape our lives are imagination and desire maybe can you elaborate on that on how imagination shapes our lives particularly when we get older because it seems that as we get older uh, imagination maybe does not have the same force as it did when we were younger yeah, that's a great question. I um, just want to say also, I love the theme of the podcast. It's such a great idea, thinking about the game and, like, as you said, the matrix as well, the matrix and, and escaping it. I'm fascinated by that. Um, and I think it really relates to the question of imagination, you know, thinking about what shapes our lives. What often happens in our minds is that we get some image or a picture of something, and it can be quite small and even unformed. For example, like let's say someone has the idea of um, career success and they imagine being the top of a bank, you know, and, and the kind of lifestyle that comes with that. Just having that little 
piece of imagination can do extraordinary things in their life. You know, if, if they really believe that, if that draws them, if they have the desire, that, that they can, you know, sacrifice decades of their lives working for a company, you know, climbing up, doing all sorts of other things just for this one goal that they might not even think about very much. And often, obviously, what happens is you get there and it's not what you quite imagined. Um, but I think there's a social element of this too, which is that society accepts certain images of success, obviously, and we absorb those. And so lots and lots of people have the dream of like, you know, being top of a corporation um, or being a professor for other people maybe. And so breaking out of the matrix is partly like having your own image, imagining your own picture of success and then figuring out how you can really desire that, devote yourself to it. And I think the default position is we just go along with the one society implants in our brain. And it is really hard to, to firstly think of your own one, your own idea of what, what would be great to do in life, and then really to follow that. Um, it's a whole, you know, the second part of your question is um, as we get older, and I think there are many reasons why it gets harder to do that. You know, you, you probably understand yourself yeah. like as, as I do. You know, like you get family and and many other concerns. Um, and I remember, you know, when I was like 18, I had this idea that I wanted to ride my bike to to Sydney from Melbourne. And I, I just remember thinking about, I thought that'd be so cool. Like I imagined being out there on the bike, and then suddenly I was doing it on my summer holidays, and I just got on my bike and rode for like 14 days. You know, yeah. And it feels like when you're young, that's the kind of thing you do. But, yeah. Well, you know, when you're young, you had the, the, your most vivid imaginations, right? You really, you know, you think you could conquer the world, you know, you have big dreams. But somewhere along the line, maybe like you mentioned, society kind of like beats that out of us. But we we lose that faith in our imagination. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think it's really hard to have that faith in, in yourself. Um it's, it's just naturally hard. It's not like the default position is that we have faith in our own dream. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do and no one ever finds that easy, I think. So in your studies in, in terms of even uh, theology, like how can people keep that imagination, you know, in the world, you know, especially I, I call it the matrix because it, it, you know, our self-worth and our identity kind of gets determined by stuff that's outside of us uh, I was reading a book called Atomic Habits by Atomic Habits by James Clear and he was talking about you know ha how habits shape us and how there's three layers of habits there's the outcome there's the process and there's the identity so lot, we're, we're focused on the outcome and the outcome could be you know getting that top position at your job or whatever um, and obviously you whatever the process that is but be, because it's not in the identity it's not a true you know goal um, it feels empty once we get there and especially now with social media outcome-based goals outcome-based habits are like prevalent right that because we see that all the time how can somebody block yeah. out that kind of block out the matrix a little bit and just kind of refocus on you know their identity or their imagination yeah it's a great question i think um 
one thing to do is to like dive into your dream a little more. So thinking about like what is imagination? One way to define it is it's the capacity to create a mental model of a thing or a situation that doesn't yet exist. So compare us to like a goldfish, for example. You know, the fish swims around in its tank, and its mental model of the world is just everything that's there already. It never thinks, okay, what would a different tank be like? It just deals with what's in front of it. Maybe that's like us in social media, you know, and then just taking on the goals that the status gives us. But what we can do with imagination is we can say, oh, if I can imagine a different tank, you know, with more seaweed or whatever a better tank would be. And you put together a mental model, it's like constructing a house. And if you want to believe in that, one thing that's really helpful to do is to do that very explicitly. So there's a lot of exercises that we can do, obviously, to sit down and like write out our dreams. Um, one thing I do with that, I have a business coach that you know as well, uh, Jason Eisner. Yeah. And uh, yeah, one of the great um, exercises that he got me to do was to um, write down in real detail, like what what it would be like if I had my ideal life, you know, however long from now, 10, 20 years. But the key was doing it in absolute detail, like you get up in the morning, what does it look like out the window? What do you do next? Like, what, are you, what shoes are you wearing? And, you know, the car you get into, where do you go to work? What exactly is the door like? What's on your desk? Painting the whole picture. And the reason of doing that is that you're fleshing out the mental model. So it's not just a little fragment in your head about, oh, I might do that. It's a real picture. And then, you know, really entering into that picture maybe like hearing it every day you know returning to it can help you kind of create your own mini world that you can believe in in yourself i think that's a great starting point you know in your background with neuro neuroscience i know that um vision boards and kind of visualizing your success before you attain it is something that's commonly uh recommended and i heard somewhere where you know, your mind doesn't know the difference between reality and, you know, your dreams and all that. And if you could convince your mind that that is real, it will just work towards it as though it expects to get that. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, I would add that our minds are also wired to be social. So it, another part of it is recognizing just how difficult it is to break out of the socially accepted dreams that we get given, you know, and it's always going to be hard. And I think just recognizing that it's hard is really helpful because it helps us not beat ourselves up so much when it is hard to believe in, in the other dream. You know, it, it's not as simple as like just telling your mind, you, know, you really have to persuade your mind that something is real. Um, and you're fighting against big forces that are persuading you of other goals, like all the billboards and Instagram ads and you know every, everything that other people value. Um, so it, it's in, in a, what you're actually doing in some ways is creating a new value which is an interesting way to think about it. Like we don't often use the word values, but all that means is some image of something that, that you value, that, that you want. And society has certain things that it wants, but creating your own one is like creating a new value. So for me, um, I want to start a company based around therapy. And uh, what I have to do is like build this picture of that company and really value that and make that a central value in my life which is really hard to do because there's a lot of competition from everything else you know? so you you mentioned therapy and your bio also mentions that you had a transformational experience with therapy 
Can you tell us a bit, little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. You know, I studied neuroscience and I was always skeptical of psychotherapy. Um, and I read an article once by this um, philosopher in England called Alain de Botton. Uh, he's the one that runs the School of Life. And at the time, I was surprised because he was really advocating for psychotherapy. And I remember feeling a little more open to it after that article, even though I was pretty skeptical. But at some point, I, I just thought it would be really interesting to try it. I think someone described it to me not as, it's not something medical. It's more like an exercise in gaining self-knowledge, almost like having a journal or painting a picture. It's more of a literary exercise in some ways, therapy. Um, it's about reflecting on your life, you know, thinking about who you are and what you want. So that kind of intrigued me, that way of thinking about it. And eventually just signed up for a therapist. I was in Oxford at the time, um, ended up doing it a lot. And, um, you know, I'm a complete convert. Uh, when I think back to all the things that have influenced me, it's kind of like therapy is the only one that actually made a difference, I would say. So like, you know, all of this education, great. Okay. It gives you lots of theories. It doesn't change you that much. I also kind of experimented with religion. I used to be a pretty strong atheist and I kind of dived into religion in England and I went to church every, um, sometimes every day, you know, every once a week. But ultimately it was doing therapy and I ended up doing therapy like um, five days a week for three years, having that intense amount of contact with someone who, who was like extremely wise and insightful and thoughtful, it actually changes you. Um, and I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about that possibility because so few things can actually achieve that reading yeah. a book, you know, you, you read it, gives you an idea of it. Do you really change your life? Like it's very hard to change your life, but encountering a person every day who kind of drips little bits of wisdom into your mind, like drip, drip, drip over three years for five days a week wow. that actually seeps in. And um, so I, I'm really passionate about like expanding that practice because I think it can actually change people and improve lives and society. How did you, what were the connections to like imagination? Did he give you uh, maybe more confidence to follow, follow your dreams and visions or did that, lead to action yeah I mean, it was a she um a woman um yeah absolutely i mean one thing that the whole experience focused me on was being more aware of my inner life my own desires ironically when i arrived in oxford i was really keen to to not be an individual <laughs> i was feeling kind of rebellious against the modern culture of everyone wanting to be individual and i had this idea of immersing myself in these old traditions, hence the religion, uh, but also like England and all of the history. But it was funny because the experience I actually had was with therapy and I realized I was so unaware of myself before then. Not that I'm you know, massively there now, but compared to what it was, I can actually notice what's going on inside me, which um, is so different. And it actually gave me the confidence to try to start this therapy business. You know, at the time I, I had different ideas about what I was going to do. I basically wanted to join someone else's thing. But over time, it's really given me the ability to say, I'm going to do something myself, you know, despite the fear of failure and everything. Um, 
which I, so that that's a, a big difference. I couldn't have done that before. Do they, um, cause I, I know we talked before and I, I, I'm taking a class at Yale online about the, um, finding true happiness. And they talk a lot about what you talked about, about people wanting that big job, that big house, and how, how that does not really give you um, the happiness you're looking for. And so some of the tasks that they have us do are, you know, journaling, maybe some, you know, obviously that includes some self-reflection on there, um, some gratitude statements daily. Did, and at, my impression of therapy is, you know, you talk to someone, they ask you questions, you know, you kind of talk things out. Uh, but from that, did, were there any actionable items that you did that help you give you that confidence to pursue your therapeutic therapy, therapy opportunity? Um, yeah, I guess you're wondering about like exercises that other people can do. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things, and I, and I have the same issue, actually, you know, I, I tend to be a, a big reader, but in the beginning, I was just that. I was just a reader, you know, and I didn't necessarily put into action. I, I said, like, these are great steps. These are great advice. But then I wouldn't act on them, right? I would just know of them. So I think one of the biggest things for us is um, we might have imagination, but we don't take actionable steps to get anywhere close to that. Yeah, um, I guess there are a couple of things there. One is like, how can you implement therapy? And the other one is like, how do you um, follow your imagination? How do you follow your dream? You know, I think with their therapy, um, I think that it, it did change me. Like it changed the way my mind works. So in some ways that everything, all my actions have changed, you know, um, I'm much less anxious. I'm much more aware. Like I've made so many different kinds of plans. You know, I probably wouldn't have met my wife, for example, if it wasn't for therapy. I met her in a cafe and I literally just come out of the therapy session. And we've been talking about like how, how difficult it is for me to follow my own desire, especially around like romance, you know, I get a, I get a desire and my mind immediately used to push it away almost before I even noticed. Um, I think it was worse than it is for other people, perhaps. It was pretty hard. Anyway, I'd been slowly working on this and I walked into the cafe and there's this attractive girl there. And I thought, you know, just for once, I'm going to actually act on this. And I um, like I walked up to her and I was like, do you mind if I share your table? And so we got talking and ended up dating. And then she was American and that, you know, took me eventually, well, part of the reason was, you know, came to America. So yeah. completely changed my life. Um, and so in some ways, the effect of those deep, that deep influence over many years has had many uh, action implications for my whole life. But there's another kind of aspect to your question, I think, which is like, what, what tasks can we do that can help with this sort of stuff? And, you know, I said, I said one of them before, I think, which was like the visioning exercise of really fleshing out your mental model of what you want, of what you're imagining. Um, you know, I think another one is, is actually, um, this might sound too meta, but it's like act acting. <laughs> so, you know, just doing one thing that is possible on that goal. This has probably been said by many people, but I think it's it's a very important point, which is you just need to do one small thing, even if it's tiny, because that will get things started and then things start rolling. So like whatever it is, you know, just just do it. And uh, my favorite um 
my favorite philosopher, Goethe, the German poet, uh, he said, um, I can't remember the exact, um, sorry, that was my cat. Okay. <laughs> Um, apologies about that. Uh, yeah, so Goethe um, said this line, he said, you know, act first and then the world opens up to you. In the beginning was the act. So it can really affect your brain to just do something along the lines of your vision because then it makes it a little more real and then you start to build up a structure around you in your life that supports it. Like I imagine for your podcasts, you know, that started as an idea, right? as an imagination at some point. Yes, and actually, um, it did start as an idea, and I would I would talk, you know, I'll be honest with you, one of the big reasons why it started this podcast is because um, I would talk to my, my kids and stuff, and they wouldn't, you know, they would just like shrug, and they're young still, my oldest is only 14, but I said, I'm gonna do this podcast and really share these ideas because I want them to have something to look back to, and, for me, it just helps me flesh out what what you know Jason talked about. It helps me flesh out what I really want, you know, because you have this idea. I mean, let me do it and figure out if I still want to do it. Number one, and number two, if I don't, if I do, what what are you know? How does it look like for real? So, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's great advice as usual from Jason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. You've got to experiment. You've got to throw yourself into it. And I think we find this hard as individuals and as corporations too, like the work I'm doing at BCG, we're writing about how companies find this hard to experiment, to act, to, to throw yourself into it and then see rather than like trying to determine everything up front. Yeah, and that's actually a great segue to my next question because you wrote an article called Competing on Imagination. Um, and it was really directed more towards business, but you did have some actionable steps. There were seven, seven things you talked about. Can you maybe talk about the top three from the seven? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess you can think of it in terms of blocks and enablers. So the top three blocks, I think, to imagination in companies one is you know, the idea of legitimacy. So often companies will want to see some kind of financial model of an idea before they're willing to take it seriously. Um, but with imagination, it actually starts as a very personal thing. So it's often even just one individual who has an idea. And it's very hard for companies to take that seriously. Um, an example is, uh, you know, my college in Oxford, I had this idea that they could buy um, whole different kinds of like fittings for like doorknobs and everything. I just felt that they were buying cheap stuff and there was ways to do it that was better. That didn't cost a lot more. Anyway, I thought it was a great idea. And I went to the head of, you know, whatever. And she said to me, you know, we can't really act on this unless you get like a petition of students. And there are all these hurdles. And for them, the hurdle, like the legitimacy was based on democracy. It was like, you need enough people who want this for us to do something. In companies, it's based on finance. Like we need to know, this idea needs to be well-developed enough to know how much money you would make for us, for us to like really take it seriously. So one challenge is taking something seriously um, that's just an individual idea. Is there companies that you know of that maybe uh, don't have that blocker? or? Can oh, yeah. There are some great examples. Like one of the best ones is a company that not many people have heard of. It's called Recruit. 
the full name is Recruit Recruit Holdings. It's a Japanese company. They they own a huge number of companies. Like I think someone described them as like LinkedIn plus Twitter plus you know Glassdoor, and and they also own a whole lot of real estate. So they're a huge company, um, and they're really good at entrepreneurship, as they call it. You know, um, so they they have a system where if you're in, if you're an employee in any department, you can email this group with an idea. And the barriers are very low to getting funding and getting started. So they, this this internal group will hook you up with other members who are interested in the idea. They'll post it on their forum. You can get like a small amount of funding very quickly, like a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. And then there are obviously like steps uh, of funding and support, but it's it's not hard to move up them, and it's not hard to get on that ladder. And the other thing they're really good at doing is they have these massive events once a year, which celebrate everyone who's thinking of ideas and turns them into heroes. So like, uh, and uh, you know, they stand up on stage, they talk about their idea, even if it's not fully worked out yet, and everyone claps. It's like a huge thing, lights, big audience, and the whole point they say is not really for the ideas themselves. It's for the people in the audience to tell them you can do this too. Awesome. And out of this program has come a lot of new businesses that they've founded. You know, and obviously they get the reward because someone has a great business idea, they invest in it, they own the equity, they make <laughs> wow. the profit. So. It's a great, it's a great system they have. Um, another American example is Zappos. And you've heard of them, Tony yes. Shea. Um, they have a very different business model entirely in terms of their organizational structure, but it's hugely decentralized. So their motto is, we, we interviewed them for the book and um, Tony Shea or, or what his, um, someone in his team actually said that their motto is in most companies, it takes only one no. So only one person has to say no to kill the idea. At Zappos, it takes only one yes to get oh. it started. So everyone has their own budget that they control, and just one person has to say, "Yeah, that sounds cool. I'll, I'll pay for it with my own budget." That's all you need to get an idea off the ground. Awesome. So, you know, that's awesome for encouraging like imaginative experimentation. I'm curious if you interviewed Google for your book. Uh, no, we didn't, um, not the heads of Google, but we did interview the head AI researcher at Google, um, who was fascinating because we, we were interested in like, can AI be creative as well? So we had a great conversation around that. Well, um, I only asked that because obviously I have a techno, techn technology background and um, th they have one of the best uh, entrepreneur or entrepreneurship type of environment where they'll give every engineer um, 20% time to work on whatever they want. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. They will pay for their resources, they'll pay for classes, books, whatever they want to work on, they can work on it. And when they want to bring it to their team, they can, they'll develop it. And if it's, you know, if they think it's worthwhile. And I don't think, I, I'm not sure people realize just how many ideas that Google has brought to the market were from, from that program. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think Gmail came out of it. Someone yeah, Gmail, uh, you know, the auto-populating of searches when you're typing in and kind of pre that was brought out of there's a lot of AI the Google sketch Google like visual uh, shapes all came out of somebody just working on whatever they want to work on yeah and I imagine a big contribution is almost the mythology around the 20% time even if the time itself is not always effective it's the fact that they have that and that everyone like in the company and many people outside know about it it creates a feeling you know that, that we can be scrappy we can think of new ideas and i think that probably permeates their culture would be my guess right yeah and if you ever i don't know if you've ever been to google but google is 
all of their walls have are like whiteboards so you yeah. can like stop and write to talk about ideas and they you know they have all kinds of speakers that they welcome uh, engineers to do and so it, it's a great environment for just bouncing ideas and, and doing a yeah, bunch of stuff that's great i just wanted to come back because i didn't finish my top three oh, but i'll go I'm through it quickly <laughs> so yeah i think top one is giving legitimacy to ideas and second one is under, understanding what an early stage idea looks like um that it might be quite weird at the beginning so uh, there's a story of um johnny ive who used to be the head designer at apple who basically designed all of their hit products they have a core design team and what that team is really good at doing is listening to ideas when they're in a really, you know, speculative, almost bizarre early stage. Like they were sitting around trying to think of a new idea for a computer. And someone was like, I've been thinking about like eggs recently, like the egg shape. I don't know. It's just cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you said that in a normal boardroom meeting or something, they would be like, what the hell are you talking about? But they, they worked with it. And that was actually the beginning of the, um, you know, that iMac they yeah. made with those colored, you know, it's the first computer to look like an egg. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you got to understand like ideas can start in a bizarre place. And then the third one is not assessing and rewarding imagination as a key skill. I think, you know, companies aren't systematic enough about imagination. They see it as a kind of romantic thing that is mysterious, that arrives on people. It's actually, you know, it's a capacity in everyone's brain and you have to measure it and reward it for people who are good at it. Um, like Boston Consulting Group measures a whole set of skills for every project we do, including like, you know, efficiency, communication, uh, analytic ability, all of that. You just add imagination to that. Like how good at this, was it, this person at drawing analogies? You can have a whole set of sub-skills. How good were they at noticing an anomaly rather than the average and like thinking of an interesting conclusion from that anomaly? Um, how good they, were they at like creating a range of different ideas and possibilities? There's a whole set of criteria you could create and assess people on. Um, do you want me to tell you the top three things to do as well? Yes. Okay, these are these are a bit more personal as well. I think they go for companies and people. Okay. The first one is um, so we wrote an article in Harvard Business Review recently um, called "Imagination is More Important Now Than Ever." So talking about the coronavirus time. Yeah. And the top thing to do is create time for reflection, which is pretty hard if you know you're managing a crisis. A lot of people are at the moment. Um, you know, but it's really important and. Most of the time in business and in life, probably, we operate with our fight or flight nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system. That's the one that amps you up, you know, lasers your focus into a target, gets you onto a goal. But there's another parallel nervous system called the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest as opposed to fight or flight. And that's the system that comes into play when you're, you're eating, you're relaxing, you're chilling out. And actually, imagination seems to be associated with that second state, you know, because it's more about broad thinking, speculation. So creating time for that in your life, which could be going for a walk without your phone, uh, it could be playing to uh, playing or listening to some music. Um, um, you know, it could be just taking time over a meal, you know, like the old tradition of long lunches might actually be good for imagination. Second um, thing to do is is to play and recognize the value of play. And play is basically just improvised um, behavior. So 
it's doing stuff that just comes to your head as opposed to something planned. Um, so even if you're just having a playful conversation where you just toss out ideas, maybe you're joking, you're bantering, or you're just throwing out an idea, doing that is really good practice for imagination. You know, it creates, um, gives permission for people to, to play as well. Yeah. Um, and then the third one I would say is um, investing in experimentation. So at the company level, it's really important, even when you're in a crisis, especially when you're in a crisis, to invest in experiments, even if they're just like cheap experiments. And there are a lot of examples of companies doing this during difficult times. So Lego, for example, was um, uh, around the Second World War. He, you know, the Lego factory burned down, and he was just a, a single operator back then. But even despite that, he invested in a whole new plastic toy manufacturing machine, which no one had done before. He spent the company's entire year profits on this one machine around like just after the war. Um, and of course, like that eventually led to Lego, but he wasn't afraid to invest in experimenting. And it's the same with us personally, you know, it's difficult to act on ideas that you might have to, to imagine, like to imagine and believe and then act. Um, but that's what we've got to invest in doing. Um, so I have a couple of questions actually from uh, your top three list. And the biggest question I have is, um, especially on com for companies. So obviously Google, Zappos, um, the recruiting, the Japanese recruiting firm, highly successful companies. Um, the DN or the steps of their success are obviously open to go research. People normally copy success in their steps. Why hasn't this been adopted more? I think it's um, couple, like many reasons. Uh, one is that like the whole idea of corporations is not based around imagination. You know, corporations were invented maybe in the 17th century in Europe, and the whole idea, like you know, Adam Smith articulated, uh, was to to divide and conquer, to create specialized roles in order to scale up and produce something at, at scale. So they've always been about standardization and scale and efficiency. And it's worked really well. That works really well when you have a great idea, like making a car for, for Ford, you know, and it's a model that's going to be sustained. It doesn't work well when you need to change your business model uh, or you need to adapt. But companies since their beginning, they're not oriented around that. The idea, it's very hierarchical. The idea is to come in and you fill a role and you, you contribute to the business model. So that's one piece of inertia that holds companies back from doing it. Um, another is just human nature, I think. Like it is hard to do these things. I think we also naturally fall into to fulfilling a role. We like it. It limits things. You know, we, we have a job, we go home. It's nice. We've got other priorities in our life for many people. Um, and so that's the situation for all companies. And you actually need to create uh, very intelligent well-designed processes to try to encourage imagination and to make people think it's really worth it to have an idea in the company, you know, that your boss is, I'm just going to laugh at you or, or just think it's a waste of time. So th there's a natural inertia as well in, in people. And it's the same at an individual level. By default, we fall into society's um, pattern. And so even though we can see and we can cognitively understand how some people might have got out of it, um, it's very hard to do. Um, 
and not hard in an intellectual sense, uh, an emotional sense, I think. You know, um, the second thing in your backdrop there is uh, believe, you know, imagine, believe, achieve. Yeah. And the believe, as, as we've talked about a couple of times, it's hard. So um, I think we can see it, but uh, we've got to practice it. So I, I am studying um, a little bit of my um, imagination and what prevents us from doing that maybe and a lot of it could be fear of failure. How does that play a role into the reluctance to take that leap into imagination? Definitely, yeah. I mean, fear of failure is one of those things that we hear and it's like a cliche term almost. Um, it's, a, it's a very good term. Um, but I think when I think about it, say, in my own life, I'm trying to start this business, what is my fear of failure? It kind of doesn't appear to me as a fear of failure. It, it just, there's something in me that makes me reluctant. And it's almost like I have to notice it in retrospect. You know, when I'm feeling all enthusiastic about the goal, I'll go and do stuff, I'll have a great day. But then I, I realize, oh, for like five days, I just haven't done that yet. And it's like, it, it actually blocks me before it even gets to my consciousness somehow. Like it, it's an aversion, kind of deep aversion to doing this. And I, I think there, then that's fear. It doesn't doesn't come as a nice little package saying I'm stopping you from doing this. Like, do you want that? <laughs> you know, it takes over and, and and kind of turns you away from the thing before you've even had time to reflect on it. So, I think there's this deep fear that's it's very hard to get over. That's why it's so good to have talk to people like you or to have a business coach or a therapist because they can um, help you notice that and, and work through it bit by bit and keep coming back to the task. But I would also change the term slightly. I would say it's not just failure like you know that's part of it because we can fear oh i might try this i might end up being a loser i might have wasted my life but often that fear is there anyway like we fear oh, I'm, I'm in the wrong job i'm wasting my life but it, there is a kind of fear of doing something different there's a fear of difference and it's often like doing something different from what your family was used to say you know like my family hasn't been very entrepreneurial no one that I grew up with has like founded their own company. Um, and they were, those were all the patterns of life that really influenced me early on. Um, you know, people have been an architect, there's a lot of creativity, but like um, a drawer, um, all, all sorts of things. But if, if you grew up, you know, surrounded by people that were just normal to start a company, then the fear wouldn't be there. So th there's a big fear of being different, especially from the background that you come from. And I, I think that's, it's a very hard thing to just get over. You can't make it go away. But I think a good step is to at least acknowledge it. You know, then at least you can objectify it a bit and see if this is a block. Absolutely. I actually have uh, two more questions regarding that because I heard a quote that says people overestimate what they could do in a year and underestimate what they could do in 10 years. And so we have this. I'm gonna take the like I'm gonna take this podcast and if I don't have a million followers by next week, ah, forget it. It didn't work. Instead of like, well, this is I, my first podcast. Let me work through this. Let me see what works, what doesn't work. And I think that companies, you know, in that Simon Sinek video, what game we're really in, he talks about how um, Apple's in the business, the game of just being the best product to help educators, to help you know the public and so forth. They're not really looking at technology. They're not in the technology game, they're in the convenience game. 
just happen to use mm-hmm. technology to do that. And I think that companies sometimes think I'm in the make profits for this quarter game instead of saying I'm in the I'm in the game of you know bringing innovative products to help people. Yeah. And I think that sometimes us we think um, I'm a big believer in self growth and just going through that and. These are just parts of it. I'm not in the business of being uh, the best engineer or the best podcast host. I'm just going to grow through this and, you know, become better from this. And yeah, I'm going to make mistakes. I wouldn't learn. I wouldn't learn if I did not have those mistakes. So I'm good with that. But how can we change the paradigm for businesses or I think more or even personal to take a step back, a different vantage point and say, maybe refine what game you're in absolutely this is a great metaphor and i think if you think about a game a big part that defines it is is the goal in a way like a, you know soccer is defined by kicking the ball in the goal like that's the, the aim everything's oriented around that and there are obviously rules so i think a big part is you know what is the goal what's the, the vision of success we're aiming for and and apple you know or the companies you're talking about they reframed that they're like we're not aiming to do x we're aiming to do y really we're not in the game of making quarterly profit. We're in the game of, you know, maybe building a beautiful company you know, over 50 years. So changing the goal, which is another way of saying the value, the, the imagination that you hold up, the, the vision, imagined vision that you value, holding up the right one is really important. And I think the way we can think about this is through um, Aristotle. Like he had, he thought about this a lot, the philosopher, um, and he said, you know, we have a lot of goals in life and some of them are means to ends. Like uh, I do this job to make money in order to, to X, to do what? And you, you keep asking in order to do what, in order to do what, in order to do what? And what do you get to in the end? Like, what is the goal of all of this? And he, he gave it the word, you know, well-known, but uh, flourishing uh, or, or happiness. You know, it's different translations, but living in a, a state of, you know, um, expanding yourself and living a good life. That's the goal. And that sounds obvious, but we don't actually live like that. You know, we live as though the game we're in is getting to the top of this company. That's, that's you know, the actual thing we're striving for, even if we might not say that to ourselves. So to really say, like, what is my game? The game is to flourish, you know? And I think a, a great um, unexpected place, I mentioned this um, before, but, you know, we can um, we can actually look to to British aristocrats for some advice here. And I think they're a great example because, you know, aristocrats like for the last few hundred years, they've had all the money and status sorted out. They haven't needed to get more status. They haven't needed more money. They've had like a beautiful house, like social position, lots of friends. So obviously there are many people who didn't do this, but a lot of them, they just want to enjoy life. They just want to flourish. And so their life revolved around just projects that they did. They they loved gardening, so they built like a beautiful big garden, or they they wanted to go on a trip through Europe, so they just went went on it for like five years. Um, and it was whatever came to them, whatever felt would fulfill them as humans. Um, you know, not striving in a career, but just trying to do projects in order to flourish. And you know, I think it's very possible to do that. And your podcast seems to be an example of that. Like you're doing it to grow you know, to, to just expand yourself, to live more richly. And those are things that we should absolutely value above all else, I think. Actually, I love that quote by Aristotle because I tell people all the time that once you define what you want, so for example, people talk about 
you know, being wealthy financially. And what that really means, what that really probably means is not that you have the car, it's that you have freedom. You have freedom, you don't not tie to a job, you have freedom to do and explore and your hobbies. So once you realize maybe that that's the end game, there's a lot of different ways you can make that happen. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to always be kill myself for, for my job. I could probably do other things and still get that end game somehow. Exactly, yeah. And it, it's, it sounds like you're doing a really good service to help us reflect on that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great benefit for, for me as well. So it, it gets a good reminder for myself. Um, and then the other question I had for you in terms of this conversation, um, and I, it was just, I'm just curious. Um, there's another quote that I heard about leveraging behavior, not trying to change it. So do you use social media and pe- things that our people are already on uh to maybe give some therapy to that, to maybe give people pause to reflect on things that um, they could do to use imagination more in their lives? Yeah, I, I mean, I just don't do it very successfully. But <laughs> like, I, I would love to be doing that. I try to do that. I think absolutely. I think, you know, all kinds of media, you should use whatever gets to people where they are. I absolutely think that, you know, um, back in like the 1100s in medieval Europe, the big media was like writing a poem. You know, if you wrote a big poem, it was going to have a massive impact, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Probably giving a sermon as well was the other one. Or doing a painting maybe in the Renaissance, that was the equivalent of like making a big film. And um, uh, those genres got great minds to do incredible examples of work within them. But today we have new genres like film, social media, um, probably virtual reality, um, you know, just engaging with a website even is kind of art. And I, I want to take all those classical ambitions of helping people flourish and helping us rethink what game we're in, uh, but do that through the channels that exist today um, in, the, in the most, you know, gripping way possible. I just feel, <laughs> yeah, it's quite hard. Like, yeah, I post something on Twitter and one person likes it. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, though, it's like, um, you know, we underestimate the 10 years, maybe. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's who, it's not who likes it. It's the right person that likes it. Because, you know, you that, might. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. 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 No, it's a definite struggle. And I think that uh, social media and all this really makes it more complicated because we just, it's a constant comparison, you know, and I think you evaluate your life constantly on social media um, and the media itself. So I think self-reflection is huge. I think we don't really do that enough. Um, I'm starting an Instagram account for my company. Um, It'll be Different Light Co. Okay. And and so the idea there will be to have posts that help people reflect. You know, even though Instagram is a status-focused medium, we're going to try and um, create like thoughtful mini essays and images. Awesome. Um, you know, just talking about what you mentioned earlier about videos, I think I think people uh, underestimate also uh, videos on YouTube and, and even music uh, mm-hmm. that are huge. Uh, they get people to really act on emotion, which people don't really realize means energy and emotion. And uh, it's something that we really need to do to give us that courage, right? To start to start to live with imagination. Absolutely. Yeah, movies and music are the two biggest things that shape our lives. 
um, I think, emotionally. They're just so, both of them are so hard to do from the perspective of, you know, someone who's not in that arena. Yeah, Only could be a famous musician or a <laughs> famous director. <laughs> so, yeah. And there's a lot of parallel between business and and personal, and I and I feel that sometimes um, because the people running these businesses are obviously people, and they don't have that in their lives, it makes it hard to transfer that vision to their business. What are the some of the biggest uh, parallels that you've seen in terms of personal and and business, and, and using imagination? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, one example is I mentioned him, Alain de Botton, who runs the School of Life. Um, you know, he uh, is a pretty popular philosopher, not so much in America, but he's written about 15 sort of very popular books based on philosophy. And he's really converted that into a company called the School of Life, um, which is a very experimental company trying out a lot of different ways of reaching people with, with wisdom. Um, but I think he's got a great alignment between what he cares about personally and, and what he's trying to do in the world. It, you know, it's a very hard thing to do especially at a, at a very large scale. Um, um, you know, there are companies like Patagonia that people know is where the founder is, is still involved and, and creates an ethos for the company. Oh, a good company actually is called Arup. It's in the architecture world, A-R-U-P. It's from Europe and they're, they're a pretty big company, but they're still um, foundation or family owned. And the founder's statement is still like read by every new recruit and they have a real ethos and philosophy of, of committing to the long-term work. Um, and it feels like they've managed to align, you know, some personal goals of doing good in the world with, with the business. Um, are those the kind of things you're thinking about or? Yeah, I think someone that really uh, lives that philosophy, it's going to transfer obviously into business and it's going to kind of, that vision is going to be in the business. Um, and yeah. And also, they're gonna uh, encourage employees and, and and people in there to to have that same, you know, yeah. vision. Well, Tony Shea, for example, is a great instance of this. You know, he's a very experimental thinker and very imaginative. And because he runs Zappos, um, he just decided to transform the whole company, the way that it does business. And they're the most experimental company on the planet, probably, uh, the way that they run themselves. So if you have someone who's determined, who has the power and in a business, you, you know, you can do a lot. I think if we can get people flowing into businesses who are thinking the way that we're talking about, like wanting flourishing to be the overall goal and trying to help others do that, that will transform businesses. You know, we get into positions of influence, we can shape them. Um, yeah. I think one of the biggest issues, because, you know, one of the reasons that I started this podcast and this things of that nature is just because... I just wanted to live out loud. I just wanted to live by design. I just didn't want there to be like a, I live my personal life this way and I live my business life this way. I wanted it just to be one life. Um, but in doing so, I've learned that, you know, we ex imagination, which is experimentation, we don't have all the answers and we get a lot of things wrong. And you have to be vulnerable to saying, yeah, that didn't work. Or I don't know, I'm just gonna try it. And I think people have a hard time being vulnerable that way. I, I know I had struggles in being vulnerable and being able to say, being able to, say to my close ones, I, I don't know how to do it, or I was wrong on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's that's a pathology of big companies too. It's very hard to get past that. Yeah. You know, Elon Musk seemed to, to do that pretty well, where 
he'll make mistakes and he just seems to push on you know he'll admit that they're mistakes yeah yeah so as we wrap up the podcast um i think that we're all looking for some tips to live through imagination i call it living by design um you know, the matrix is the default. Live by design is what you want to do. Your imagination. Is there like three top tips that you can share with the with us as as to how we can move towards that? Sure. Um, I guess my first one is like looking into your dreams. I know this sounds um, perhaps uh, non consequential, but actually you know if you can look into your dreams deeply enough which is not easy to do there is a lot of helpful material in there that will give you confidence and it often expresses parts of yourself that you haven't really accessed yet you know if you're a shy person you might have dreams that can tell you about other parts of yourself that you haven't lived out but that are waiting there in potential um it's very hard to do though without someone who can guide you through it like i do it with my therapist and i find that um, you know, mind expanding to do that. But I think even just writing them down, reflecting on them can be great. Drawing out some of the symbols that come up in your dreams, that can be really helpful. Um, second one, um, I would say read some philosophy that we've been talking about. So I think like reading Aristotle's Ethics, don't feel you have to read the whole thing, just sampling bits that look interesting. There's a great chapter on friendship. Um, looking up, you know, where he talked about a flourishing or eudaimonia. Um, th that's a great starting point. Um, I'd also recommend a book on Goethe that got me thinking along these lines. It's not a well-known book at all, but it's called um, Life, Love, Goethe. And it's, okay. it's an, uh, a great description of like Goethe's life because it's not so much his works, it's how he lived that is what can teach us so much. And, um, you know, he basically lives out what Aristotle is talking about. So it's a great example. Um, and the third one I would say uh, is also kind of classical philosophy point, which is, you know, self-knowledge, like that old idea of know thyself. I think we, we have so much more in us than we realize. Our consciousness is it's just a small part of our brain activity and the whole body. Most stuff that we are is not conscious yet, you know, but there's a lot that goes on within us um, that, we can make more conscious that we can connect to and, and that will as the phrase goes expand our consciousness you know we're on the west coast so you can talk about that yeah. um, but i think as you learn more about yourself what you're conscious of in yourself gets bigger so that's an expansion of consciousness and um there are many ways to do that um for me i mentioned like going to psychodynamic therapy like i think there are different kinds of therapy but the one where you deeply reflect on who you are and what's inside you um, that can really help with that. Um, but learning self-knowledge is so foundational because you are like the machine that's going to do all this stuff. So you want to know how it works, you know, everything about it. And, um, you know, it'd be great if we had a, um, everyone in society thought that this is very normal to spend a lot of time getting to know yourself. Um, but we can be pioneers at this point. And, and Absolutely. <laughs> and I imagine you're going to have some like, uh some snippets of those books in the in the Instagram posts and it really kind of entice people to read more about it. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, it was great to have you on, uh, Jack. I, I'm Thanks a big fan of what yeah. your work you do. So stay safe. 
Thank you, you too. In this, in this coronavirus era that we live in. Yes. And uh, thank you for all you do. And uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing more, more of your work on social media. I definitely will be following it and, and promoting it on my channel. So, Thanks so much. Really yeah. appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Jack. Okay, Jack. Hey, we appreciate it. Yeah, thank yeah, no you. Worries, yeah, um, I'll, we're gonna do some editing on the videos and on the yeah. audio, and then I'll send it to you before we I post it. Oh, great! Awesome. Right. Thanks. And then yeah, um, thanks so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. No, this is awesome. I really liked it. Great. And great. I am gonna do also some show notes, and I'll reference some of the material you mentioned on the notes there. So if people want to read more about them, they could you know click on the links and stuff. Um, if you have any other stuff that you want me to put on the notes, let me know. And uh, yeah. put them on there. Sure. Maybe you want to send me the draft, and I can add in any links. Yep, I'll do that. Oh, yeah, if that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Thanks, okay, Jack. Thanks, man. All right. Be in touch. Bye. Ciao.